The following message is a presentation from Grace Baptist Church in Kettering, Ohio. Psalm 78. Uh, after you've found the 78th Psalm, that's where we're going to spend our time tonight. Uh, but also hold uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and just hold your place there and uh, mark it somehow in your Bible and then when it's time, we'll turn there together real quickly and then back to the 78th Psalm. Now, the 78th Psalm, as you can see, is 72 verses, one of the longer psalms, 72 verses. And somebody is saying, you're going to preach all 72 verses of the 78th Psalm? Uh, yes. But not like a verse by verse and let's go through everything. We're going to we're going to do it in a big picture way. That's the way we're going to look at it. But we are going to look into this psalm. We're going to read the first uh, ten, uh, 11 verses together, the first 11 verses, and we'll stop there. And then I won't say much more about those 10 verses, but we're going to use that to begin to get an overview of this whole 78th psalm. And I think we can make it uh, clear. So if you uh, have it in you to stand for the reading of the Word of God, I think that's appropriate. If you need to remain seated, not a problem at all, but the 78th Psalm. Then you have marked in your Bible, somehow to turn there quickly, uh, 1 Corinthians and chapter number 10. <clears throat> all right, now Psalm 78, verse 1. This is a, notice the little heading there, Mishil of Asaph. And Asaph was a musician himself. Asaph was a Levite and a musician. And this is a song, a mashil is a song or a poem of contemplation. It is a song or poem that is didactic, meaning that we're supposed to learn from it. So kind of keep that in mind. You see those headings. Just kind of look those up. It's really interesting what uh, these headings are about in these songs. So here we go, verse number one. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. Now, I want to emphasize that. He is calling attention to the fact that the Lord ought to be praised for his wonderful works that he hath done. Emphasize that. Verse 5. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. Oh, my soul, there's all kinds of opportunities for preaching already, but we're going to look at the big picture. Look at verse 7. That they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. So he's calling attention to the wonderful works that God has done, verse 4, and he's calling attention to it and teaching and, and, and carrying on in the psalm that they might set their hope in God and not forget 
the works of God to keep His commandments. It might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, whose spirit was not steadfast with God. The children of Ephraim, an example, uh, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law and forget His works and His wonders that He had showed them. I'm going to stop right there and I'm going to make reference back and we'll connect it to the whole uh, big picture of this 78th uh, Psalm, these 72 verses. Father, we pray Your blessings now upon the time in the Word tonight. I pray that You'd help me to have clarity of thought and presence of mind to be able to communicate with God and preach uh, this passage. And I pray that Your Holy Spirit uh, would be at work. Thank You for the time to sing songs of praise to Your wonderful name. We've enjoyed the congregational singing tonight. I want to thank you for the ministry and song that we have just received, and thank you so much for the message and the messenger of these songs. God, we appreciate it, and they, they register, they resonate in our hearts as uh, believers, as those who know Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the way that you've allowed us to express our thanks and our joy in you by music and by song. Now, I pray you'd bless this time in the Word. May your Holy Spirit again be at work and accomplish your purpose, both in every individual life and the life of a congregation uh, collectively as well. We love you and thank you for your great love to us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, I'm going to... I, I've done this through the years with several sermons where I kind of revise a song and kind of write my own thing that I want to get across from a song. So I'm not going to give you my, my best voice tonight. I, want, I don't want to show up Brother Dave. I mean, I appreciate him and his singing tonight so very, very much. So I'm going to hold back the, the best I can sing. You're not going to hear that tonight. <clears throat> anyway. Uh, but I'm going to sing a chorus, part of a chorus that I know that most of you know. I have decided to follow Jesus. How many of you know that song? And you know how it goes, I have decided to follow Jesus. Now listen carefully, and I'm going to do my best to start low enough where I don't l lose it, where you've got to go higher. Uh, but I'm going to do my best to sing just, just a dab. It's not much, so when you hear me right at the beginning, stay tuned. It's not going to be that long. It won't hurt you, I promise. But listen to these words. <clears throat> You know the course. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. But if he won't do what I want him to, I will turn back. I will turn back. What do you think? Not my singing. I'm talking about the words. I doubt if anybody's going to pick up on that and say, you were going to sing that in our church. Man, that's good. No, it's just opposite of how we know the song to be. I will follow Jesus and no turning back, no turning back. And based upon the emphasis of this psalm, 
Now, I've changed the name of the words to fit those who would never sing these words, but live them. And if he won't do what I want him to, I will turn back. I will turn back. Somebody said, that's ridiculous. I mean, why would anybody want to sing that song? Well, that's not the main question. The main question is, why would anybody want to live those words? And as a matter of fact, turn back. Now, you couldn't tell necessarily in just the 11 verses that we read, but that's the main concern of the psalmist in this 78th Psalm. And in this Psalm, you'll find a movement. And, and here's the way I like, to, I like to put it. You'll find it going like this. As you read through the Psalm, 72 verses, you're going to find about six, seven, eight times, depends on how you want to look at it and how close you, how technical you want to be. But uh, six to eight times where you have this and then it goes down and then it comes back up and it has that kind of movement through it. Uh, somebody said, I don't understand. Well, I'm not through yet, so follow along and, and pay attention to this. That this high part has to do with when he calls attention to the wonderful works of God. Because as you go through the psalm, you're going to see that movement that he is again on calling attention to the wonderful works of God. And you can see in the psalm that he is primarily concerned with the covenant, his covenant people, the nation of Israel, and how God dealt with them through the years. And the psalmist calls attention to the fact that God showed them his wonderful works. So you have the wonderful works of God and the sad response of his people. More wonderful works of God and the sad response to his, of his people. More wonderful works of God and the sad response of his people. So that if you went through this entire psalm, you would come across the works of God that had to do with their deliverance from Egypt. Now don't make me go back and preach the book of Exodus about the way that the Israelites were delivered from the bondage of the Egyptians. The marvelous manifestations of God in the plagues, in the death of the firstborn of all the land of Egypt, <clears throat> how these plagues came upon the Egyptians and did not touch uh, the Israelites. These are the wonderful works of God that had everything to do with their ability to escape and go to freedom after 400 years of slavery and bondage. See, wonderful works of God. And then, of course, you got the Red Sea incident where it looked like they were free to go. And then here comes Pharaoh's army. The only problem is the Israelites are up against the Red Sea this way, and you got some uh, uh, mountains this way and desert this way. There was no escape. And they couldn't go back, and, and uh, Pharaoh's army is in hot pursuit. So what does God do? Israel is crying to Moses, and they're saying, You brought us out here to die. And they came out of Egypt. They had all this, and the Amalekites wanted to come against them and take it. That's when Moses held up his arms, and when he held up his arms, then the Israelites prevailed, and when they fell down because of heaviness, and Aaron and Hur came along beside and held it up, and God gave the victory that day. It wasn't the skill of the Israelites in battle. These people had been slaves for 400 years. 
It wasn't their skill in battle. It was God. That goes into the category of the wonderful works of God. Then you have the intercessory work of Moses. Moses, if you remember, stood between a guilty, sinful people how many times and appealed to the righteous and holy God that he would have mercy upon them, and he did. And he did. If you read the entire accounts, not of this passage, but the entire accounts of God bringing Israel through the land of Egypt, then you will see that beyond any question that God said that if it had not been for the intercessory work of Moses, that they would have been slain. And he said to Moses, you stand over here and I'll take the people over here. I'll do away with them and I'll start over with you. Moses said, oh God, what of your covenant? What of your, pro what of your promise? What are the heathen going to say? And God, what about your word? And Moses interceded and pled. That's, that's why Mo when Moses said by the Spirit of God that there is going to come one like unto him that would come. And then Jesus took Moses' words out of Deuteronomy chapter 18 and it's applied to him. He was that prophet that would come that would be like unto Moses. Well, how was he like Moses? Well, who is Jesus if not our intercessor? See, that's what the, what the pastor was just talking about. Well, I go out of the book of Hebrews in chapter number 4, that he stands between us and God, and he is our mediator, and he is our intercessor. In the book of 1 John, it says that uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sin. Oh, my soul, that's wonderful. We're talking about the wonderful works of God. That's what he's talking about. So that's this part. When I say up and down, up and down. And what you see in response to the wonderful works of God as he makes his way through this 78th Psalm, what you see is in every situation, the sad, low response to what God did. Let me show it to you here real, real quick. We can do this real fast. See how where we ended in verse number uh, 10 and 11, where we, where we ended, and forget his works and his wonders that he had showed them. And then he talks about marvelous things that God did at the sea. Now look down at verse number 17. And they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. And then in verse 19 through 21 is some more of the good works of God. Verse 22, because they believed not in God, and trusted not in his salvation. And then in verse 23, some more, the great wonderful works of God, what he did for them. Look down in verse 32. For all this they sinned still, and believed not for his wondrous works. In verse 33, he starts to talk more about the wonderful works of God. Verse 37, for their heart was not right with him. Look at that. Can I have your attention? That, that's what I'm talking about. You have the declaration of the wonderful works of God. It's wonderful. I put that at a high level. And then you have the sad response of the people of God. God does wonderful works, and their response is they forget God. And they sinned against God. A great uh, manifestation of the goodness of God on this hand, and the sick and sad response of their sinful rebellion and willful I said willful forgetting of God. It's not like, oh, we forgot. No, it's a willful. 
forgetting of God. How could you forget the wondrous work? Excuse me, look at the nature of these works. How could you forget them? You'd only forget them if you don't want them in your mind. They did that willfully. So this is what he calls attention to. Now, it, that's kind of the big picture of the 78th Psalm. God's good works, his mighty wondrous works that he hath done, and their sad response. Now I want to call attention to <clears throat> something beyond the fact that they forget God, or that, as we've just read, they sinned against God. There's something else it says that I want to call your attention to that is very, very important for us to understand. Look in verse number 18. See, because verse number 17 says they sinned, but look in verse number 18. It says, and they tempted God. They not only sinned against God in their unbelief and their rebellion and forgetting the works of God, ladies and gentlemen, the, the Scripture says they tempted God. Now that's in verse 18. Look down in verse number 41. And the Scripture says, Yea, they turned back and tempted God. And if you look in verse number 56, it says, Yet they tempted God and provoked the Most High God and kept not His commandments. Uh, now, I want, I want you to follow here very closely. Uh, see, they sinned against the Lord, they forgot His works, but in their attitude, their sin and their rebellion, the Holy Spirit inspired Asaph to write in here on three different occasions that they tempted God. Now, <clears throat> you know, we've, we've heard about that. Uh, I, I guess some could legitimately ask the question, and and the question would be, how do you tempt God? What does that mean, to tempt God? Well, I think maybe that Bible readers in this room would probably say, well, now, wait just a minute now. Didn't the devil tempt Jesus? <laughs> yeah, you're remembering, right? That's for sure. After Jesus had uh, uh, been baptized by John in the Jordan River, the Bible says that Jesus was then led of the Spirit into the wilderness to what? Be tempted of the devil. And you remember what the devil did? Let's, let's just kind of do this. You can find it in Matthew's account and Luke's account. And when the devil tempted Jesus, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and came in under this temptation. After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, the, the tempter came and said to Jesus, If thou be, listen to this, if thou be the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, you and I know enough about Jesus and the Word of God. We know that it's not a problem for him to turn stones into bread. He could turn, read on in the, the Gospels, you'll see he could turn these stones into sons of Abraham. So bread was not a problem. And so he said, you, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And then in Luke's account, he goes next to the fact that the devil takes him out and, uh, and, and says to him, uh, takes him to the temple, Matthew's account, takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, now cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, and if you'll do that, then those people that are down there, they will see you come down from that lofty uh, position on the pinnacle of the temple. They will see you come to the ground. It's, 
It's written that, the devil quotes scripture, it is written that he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone, so you could come off of this temple, go all the way to the ground without harm, and people would believe you. And Jesus answered and said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. That's what he said. And then in Matthew's account, he took him out to a high mountain and said, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all of these nations that you can see. And Jesus answered and said, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Now, this is called the temptation of Christ being tempted by the devil. He tempted Jesus. What is he doing there? Well, basically, here's what he is doing. He is saying, if you'll turn these stones into bread, then you should be known as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Anointed One. If you will cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and come down unharmed, these people will see that, and you should be believed as the Son of God. Now, you've got to stay tuned to this. And then he said, if you'll bow down and worship me, and I back off, and I give you all these nations that you can see out here, and I withdraw, then you should be known as the Messiah, as the Son of God. Here's what it amounts to, ladies and gentlemen. It amounts to the adversary, the devil, saying, I am establishing the criteria by which you should be known as the Messiah. And Jesus answers and said, no, you're not. It is written. Basically what he is saying is, my Father will determine the conditions by which I will be known as the Messiah, not you. And so the adversary is saying, if you will do this, if you will do this, if you will do this, in other words, you meet my criteria and you should be known as the Messiah. And Jesus said, no man establishes whether I am the Messiah or not. The terms that establish me as the Messiah are determined by my Father, not by you, not by him, not by anybody. Now, that's what it means to tempt Christ, see. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me show you something here real quick. Now, don't lose your place in the 78th Psalm. We're going back. But look in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul's writing to Corinthian church, a problem church, as you know, uh, a real carnal people. Paul had to really get straight, straight shooting with them about their carnality and their sin. But it, what he does is he brings up Moses and Israel in the wilderness and tells the church at Corinth and the believers at Corinth, listen to this please, he tells them, don't you do what Israel did to God in the wilderness. I mean, this is a New Testament church he's writing to. He writes in uh, chapter number 6 of 1 Corinthians that he is mindful of the kind of background they had. Well, they were sinners. Corinth was a vile, wicked, filthy town, morally and spiritually, a vile and filthy place. And yet many had heard the gospel and had been saved. And the apostle Paul is writing them, saying, now, you need to live what you are. You have been sanctified and you have been set apart unto Christ. Now you need to live that way. And what he is saying to them is, don't you do to God what Israel did to God in the wilderness. See, 
They were his covenant people. That was settled at the Mount Sinai. God gave them the terms of the covenant, which is the law, and they agreed to the terms of the law, and they became his people. Go read it, Exodus chapter 19 and 20. It's right there for everybody to see. This is when they entered into the covenant with God. And how did they respond after they entered into the covenant of God? God gave them this wondrous work, and this wondrous work, and this wondrous work, and they did not believe, and they did not believe, and they wound up tempting God. And Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, and it lives in the Word of God to say to all of us, don't tempt God. Don't you try to set any conditions upon Jesus. Don't you try to set any conditions upon God. You and I are not, <laughs> it's not our role to determine the conditions by which He is known as Lord. He is Lord. Anyway, look down at verse number 9. So he mentions in verse number 6, uh, they were examples. Um, so look at verse 7, don't be idolaters like they were. Verse 8, don't commit fornication like they did and fell in the wilderness. Verse 9, look at this. Look at it now. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. What's that about? Numbers 21. When they were in a, listen to this, when they were tempting God, you know how they were tempting God? They were saying, well, we want to go back to Egypt. Uh, here, here's what they were saying. We want to get rid of Moses. Moses, a man of God, known even by secularists. Moses known even by secularists. That if we understand what the Bible says and what history says about this man Moses, there are many that have established that he was no doubt the greatest leader of men in human history. That's what they say about Moses. Think about that. And here's Israel. We don't want Moses anymore. They wanted to impeach Moses. And they wanted to impeach Moses and get him another leader and go back to the land of Egypt. We were better off back there. We had leeks and garlics and melons. They made it sound like Egypt was a big church picnic or something. And it was so miserable that they cried unto God and God heard them. And that's how they ever got Moses to begin with. He heard the cry of their oppression. And God was good enough to give him a man like Moses, good enough to show his wonderful works, good enough to bring him out of that wilderness, good enough to take care of them. And now they are saying in Numbers 21, as they're just about done with the journey, they are saying, we want to go back. Believe this Moses. They're mad and hot about everything. You know why they were mad? I, I, I don't have time to go into this, but I'm just going to mention it real fast. So if I ask for an amen, please give it so I'll keep going. If not, I'm going to have to stop and we'll never get out of here tonight. But it, here's, the reason they, here, here's the reason they were mad at Moses. is because if you went back, that's in Numbers 21. If you're back in Numbers chapter 20, it's when they ran out of water for what we know, according to Bible record, the third time. There's no water. And that's when Moses got angry at them because of their unbelief. And he smote the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And there's a whole sermon in that alone. But nonetheless, he spoke to the rock instead of speaking to the rock. But God did give them water. So you got water. Yeah, but we had to wait. This is the third time this has happened. We want water 
when we want water, how we want water. If we don't, if we're not going to get it, when we want to go back. No, I'm serious. Go study it out yourself. I challenge anybody to do it. The second thing that happened was um, the Moabites. No, let's see. It wasn't the Moabites. Edomites. The Edomites wouldn't let them pass through the land. See, they're getting. They're they're at the end of their wilderness journey. They're about ready to enter into a position so that they can cross into the promised land, but they need to pass through the land of the Edomites. You know who the Edomites are the descendants of? The twin brother of Jacob, Esau. So the Edomites were their cousins. So if you just kind of imagine one day, they went to Edomites and said, Hey, cuz, how about you let us pass through your land? And the Edomites said, Cousin or no cousin, you try to come through this land, we'll go to war with you. And they wouldn't let them pass through. And because they wouldn't let them pass through, the Israelites said, fine, if that's the way you're going to be, now they're mad and they're angry because this inconvenienced them, and they thought people ought to have some sympathy to what they're trying to do, and these Edomites are their own uh, relatives uh, by reason of the twin relationship between Jacob and Esau, and here are the children of Jacob saying to the children of Esau, let us pass through. You are not passing through, and if you try, you get a war on your hand. And they are bent out of shape and said, we want to go back because you won't let us go through. You know, here's the third thing that happened. Miriam and Aaron died in Numbers chapter 20. Is everybody listen to this? Miriam and Aaron, who are they now? Miriam and Aaron, not Maron and Iriam. I don't know who, who they are, but Aaron and Miriam, they died. They died. Miriam, when she died, it doesn't say a whole lot about it, just that she died. I'm not trying to make fun or anything, I'm just saying but when Aaron died, Aaron played such a significant role. They mourned for 30 days just like they did for Moses later. See, So they mourned for 30 days. And this is a big deal. Grief and sorrow has come upon them. Let, let's kind of put this together in chapter 20. First of all, there's no water. Secondly, the Edomites won't let them pass through and they want to declare war. Uh, thirdly, you got grief and sorrow to deal with. Miriam, Miriam and Aaron, they die and pass off the scene. And, and so they're just all upset because it seems like we're having one problem after another problem after another problem. And then as you start chapter 21, uh, Arad, the, the Canaanite, comes out against them and declares war on them, and they have to fight Arad, the Canaanite. Now they've got conflict and war. And when you come to chapter 21 and verse 5, are you listening to this? The Scripture says, and they were much discouraged because, it didn't say they were discouraged. Discouraged would be this big. It said they were much discouraged. That makes it this big. They were much discouraged because of the way. And that's when they said, we want to go back. We don't want to do this anymore. We're going back. And so, uh, Moses talked to God. And you know what God did? I don't know if I should say it. We live in such a sensitive time in society. And we know God's okay with almost everything and anything that anybody wants to do. God sent serpents among them. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10? Don't be like them. Don't you tempt God like they tempted God and were smitten of the serpents. The serpents came in among them and began to bite the people and the people began to die. They were much discouraged because of the way. You know what discouragement means? Discouragement doesn't mean a burden. Discouragement doesn't mean heaviness. Discouragement doesn't mean even sorrow. 
Discouragement means that they are so down and dispirited toward God, they don't even want to go on. And so they got discouraged, much discouraged because of the way. And because of this, look, Paul said, the commentator Paul said, what they did was tempt God, which is basically saying this, you give us the water the way we want it, and we'll follow you. You get rid of the Edomites and get them out of our way, and we're good with it. You let us tell you, God, when it be a good time for Aaron and Miriam to die, and we'll be okay to follow you. You destroy the Canaanites and get them out of our way, and we're fine with following you. But if they, listen, if God won't do what they want Him to, they determine to go back. That's tempting God. And He had them bit by serpents. I dare say most congregations across America are not hearing this passage a whole lot. Because God sent serpents to make people die. <laughs> Here's the liberal heart. Oh, this is the God of the Old Testament, a vindictive and mean God. And why should these people have to die? Hold on just a second. If that even crosses your mind, you're thinking all backwards. Because the thing we're supposed to be thinking is, how did God put up with them for so long? They didn't just start this, they've been doing it for 40 years. Somebody help me, please. I said, this didn't just begin. They've been doing this for 40 years. Excuse me just a second. We're supposed to be saying is, how could they behave that way when they have seen what? The wondrous works of God. And yet they're treating God that way. See, the big question is not why did serpents go in and bite them. The question is, why did any of them live? And the question is, how could God wait, God wait as long as he did to send the serpents in? Is everybody with me here? And they tempted God. But there's one more thing in verse number 41. Look at this. Now, this is the one that for a long time got a hold of me, and I just oh, I said, I've got to figure this thing out and study it out. Look at verse 41. Yea, they turned back and tempted God. And next word, please. Limited the Holy One of Israel. Now, if I can have your attention here, please, please follow carefully. I'm doing my best to move along, get us out of here in good fashion, but, but we've got to get this across. When it says that they limited the Holy One of Israel, yesterday in Sunday school we talked about the high and lofty nature of God. He's high. His glory is above the heavens. He is high above the nations. He is so high above His creation that He must humble Himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth. How can you limit God? Heaven is His throne, earth is His footstool. The clouds are the dust of His feet. God is mighty. Beyond that, He is the Almighty. Limit God? And I'm thinking to myself for so long, I've got to figure out what this means. Limit God. Then I found out. Did a little word work on that limited. And I found out that the word limited means this. Now, I'm going to give you the definition of the word that we have translated limited. Are you listening to this now? The word means 
to make a mark, to mark something. Now, that's, that's kind of how the definition begins, to mark something. My dad, uh, my dad was a sharecropper and a farmer. We did wheat and cattle and, he, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And in the wintertime, he did a lot of carpenter work. He's a very good carpenter. And I remember a few times trying to help my dad. He told me all the way into adulthood I wasn't a very good helper. But nonetheless, I went to help my dad. I didn't understand carpentry and building and all that kind of stuff. But I can remember my dad uh, scoring a piece of wood to saw whether it's a piece of plywood or whether it's a two-by-four or two-by-twelve or something like that to be cut. And I can remember like on a, uh, on a, uh, long, like a, a piece of uh, plywood, I can remember my dad, he would hold a deal here and I would take it down to the other end where he had it marked and I'd put it down. He said, now, uh, mark it, score it. And I'd take the little deal, boom, and that red stuff would go on there and that was a mark. That's what limited me to mark something only it means to mark with an, a mark, all right, but an indention, an indentation, indenting something. I thought about that. Um, and so if you make an indention, we kind of get in our mind where, uh, like, you think about the Alamo, and you can see somebody making a mark in the sand. If you're with me, then cross this line. Or it could be done in any number of settings where they would draw a line and say, if you want to fight this, then you cross this line right here. If you cross that line, you've gone too far. All right? So uh, to limit means to make a mark, to make an indentation, and to limit something. Now, oh, one more illustration to try to get it across. Uh, I may lose some right here. But it had to do with the, uh, back in the day when we played a lot of marbles. Anybody in my generation used to play marbles? Yeah? Uh, you too? Okay, Mrs. Frank uh, played marbles. I forgot your first name, I'm sorry. But uh, she played marbles too. Well, I remember going to school and playing marbles. And the way we mostly play, there's several ways to do it, but the way we play is you got five or six guys and they want to play. And what you do is you draw this big circle. And you'd go to a place in the uh, playground, wasn't hard to find, where there wasn't any grass. You got a bunch of kids, and they wear that grass out, so you got this dirt, and you go out there and you make a mark. And then let's say each guy has six marbles. You put your marbles in there, and then you have a marble that you shoot. It's called the, We call it the tall. There are different things in different parts of the country. And so you had this um, marble that you'd shoot the other marbles with, but you had to stay on the outside of this line. This line, this, there's a limit. You can only get so close. You cross that line. You get your marbles and get out of here. You're cheating. You got to stay right in there. And so you'd get the marbles. I remember getting in a fist fight because one guy brought a steel marble to knock the other marbles out. And I said, no, you can't do that. Who do you think you are? I said, I, I don't know, but I'm just telling you, you're not going to do that. He came at me, so we had to duke it out there. Probably in the fourth grade. And... Uh, had to fight over this thing. But I don't know who won the fight, but he didn't use that steel marble. I know that. And so you get on the outside of that line, and he's, everybody takes their turn, and you shoot, and you shoot, until all the marbles are gone. You take your turn, and then uh, when it's all over, whoever has shot the most marbles out wins, and we played for keeps, and you get everybody else's marbles. 
I remember going home, I got two older brothers, eight and ten years older than me, so they taught me a lot of stuff. They kind of put me ahead of some of the kids in games because my brothers taught me how to cheat and everything, but I didn't cheat on this. You <laughs> couldn't, couldn't cheat. I stayed on the outside of the line. And so, anyway, you t I took this bag of marbles home. I walked in. I saw <laughs> this bag of marbles I'd won, and my mom says, what do you got there? And I said, marbles. You don't have that many marbles. I said, I do now. Where'd you get them? I won them at school. We played keeps. She grabbed my marbles and said, that's gambling. That's what my mom said. That ended my marble career right there as far as <laughs> playing keeps are concerned. But get back to this. You got this score here. And you got to put the marbles within here, and you got to play within that score. Now, the reason I mention that there may be people that would never do that physically, but they have drawn an imaginary line. And if God will work within that circle, they're okay with God. And if they don't work within that circle, then they are not okay with God. Excuse me just a second. Israel had a circle. What's in that circle? We want water when and how we want it. We want food. They'd also complained about that, but just not in this case. And we not only want food, we want the kind of food we want. We're tired of this angel food. And so we want some meat. And so they're tired of that. And we want, um, oh yeah, we want our enemies to be destroyed. The Edomites don't deserve to live anyway. Now we have to go around them. Then we have to fight Arad. Uh, the Canaanite, the Canaanites ought to be toasted, all of them, if God would let us get in there and not have to fight the Canaanites. And Aaron and Miriam, if God would just let us tell him, this would be, okay, now it's okay for Aaron to die. Can you imagine anybody being so arrogant and presumptuous as thinking God doesn't know what he's doing when a man like Aaron dies? That's where they were. And what they've done is limited God. God, if you work within our boundaries, we're with you. If you don't, we're not. Who is Jesus? I'm asking you, my friend. If you've been saved and you know Jesus as your Savior, I want everybody to get this, please. If you've been saved and you know Jesus as your Savior, who is He? He's Lord. That's who He is. Oh, there's some beyond me how this ever happened. Uh, you're preaching Lordship salvation. You're preaching Lordship salvation. Now, I, I don't even know anybody that says you have to meet the standards of His Lordship before you can get saved. I've never heard anybody say that. But when we trust Jesus as our Savior, He is one person. And He is called in the Bible, Jesus Christ our or he is called the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's who he is. I said, Jesus is Lord. Uh, that, that's who he is. Well, I want to get saved, but I don't want Jesus to be, uh, I, I want to get saved. There's some people that believe, apparently, that it goes like this, that Jesus says, come unto me, and, and I'll forgive you of your sins. Your sins will be Washed as white as snow, and, and you can have your sins forgiven, and I'll forgive you. Yes, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust you. You died for my sin. I believe in you. 
Some people think that Jesus said, okay, then I forgive you and I save you. Now, you go on your way and do your thing and I'll see you in heaven. No. No, no, no. He bought you with His blood. He owns you. He is Lord. You know what Lord means? Supreme ruler. Supreme authority. That's who He is. Everybody listen to this? I said, that's who Jesus is. Well, I want to go to heaven, but I don't necessarily want to do everything the Bible says that Jesus said to do. Our pastor just started a series in one of my favorite preaching exercises of all time, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You want to know what a disciple is supposed to look like? Read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and it tells very, very clearly. Oh, well, some of that stuff is hard, but some of the stuff is not only hard, it's impossible for you to do by yourself. Love those that hate you. Okay, okay, I've decided I'm going to love those that hate me. No, if the love of God's not working in you by the Holy Ghost which is in you, that's how the love of God, listen, that's what happened when we got saved. The love of God's been shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Ghost which is given to us, and that's what gave us the ability to love God, and that's what gives us the ability to love anyone, especially those that hate us. One of the greatest victories I've experienced as a Christian since I was six years old one of the most victorious things that I've rejoiced in is the ability to love people that I know hate me. That is a great victory. The natural response is, you hate me? Well, how do you think I feel about you? And besides that, this doesn't sound very spiritual, but it's downright fun to see people try to understand, how can I hate him so bad and he doesn't hate me? Well, I guess the same way that all of us were sinners against God and at enmity with God, not my word, the Bible word, we were at enmity with God and He loved us the whole time. I said He loved us the whole time. He loved us the whole time. That's how we're supposed to love. I can't just roll up my sleeves and say, I'll try that. Think I can do that? No, I can't do that. But Him in us can do that. Are we supposed to live that way? We're supposed to live like that? He's Lord. That's the way He said to live. Mm -hmm. Well, now, you know, okay, I bet I, you know, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to do this and this, but to, you know, to get really sold out, to get really dedicated to Jesus, to actually start obeying Him, to actually treat my wife like the Bible says to treat your wife, to treat my husband like the Bible says, to discipline our children like the Bible says, to take care of uh, enemies and neighbors with love uh, that are against us and make our life miserable. Uh, well, I, <laughs> I don't see myself doing that. You know what you're saying? I'll determine the conditions by which I follow Jesus. And you know what he's saying? No, you won't. You will not. And if your fellowship of him, listen to this, depends upon you staying within your comfort area, you are not following Jesus. You can't follow him by you drawing the boundary by limiting 
God. God, you work within this area, and I follow you. God won't be limited, friend. Only in your own life. And then he didn't do it. You did it. You did it. You put conditions upon him. Let's, let's just admit one thing tonight. How many of you are saved? You know you're saved. You're, you, you know you're saved. Isn't, isn't that a blessing to be able to raise your hand? Don't ever get tired of that. Hallelujah. Do you know you're saved? I love it. I'll raise both hands. We're not Pentecostals. I'm not a Pentecostal either. But I don't mind raising both hands. I did today in prayer. I don't mean to make anybody nervous, but lift your hands, oh ye people. I, that means something. I'm sure it doesn't really mean lift your hands, but that's what it says. It's sort of like when the Bible says, clap your hands, oh ye people. We don't clap in church. Well, he said, clap your hands, oh ye people. I know it surely doesn't mean clap your hands, but that's what it says. <laughs> Aren't we having a good time? We sure are. Now think about this. God's been good to us. You that just raised your hand, it's not by works of righteousness what you have done, but according to His mercy He saved you. It's not by the good things that we have done. God didn't look down on any of us and say, oh, there's a good one. I'm going to save that boy right there. Well, I know. God knows and I know. I'm a sinner. You know and God knows you're a sinner. I know what I deserved, and it wasn't the grace of God in my life. No, sirree. I have to look at my life and say, God's been so good to me. Oh, I'm so grateful. I'm grateful for my mom and dad. My dad read the Bible in the morning, read the Bible before we went to bed at night. We had family prayer before we went to bed at night. My mom, my mom was the, maybe the best Christian I ever knew. I don't know how to measure those things, but I, I can't imagine a better Christian than my mom. And we all loved it when we got together and prayed, except when mom prayed, because she prayed and prayed. If you wonder where I get my long-windedness, probably from my mom. She wasn't a big talker until she started talking to the Lord. And you think, this woman's never going to quit. She's praying for everybody everywhere. <laughs> She's praying for everybody we know and a lot of people we don't know, you know. And mom's just talking to the Lord, and she prays. She's a woman of prayer. I'm so glad for that. I'm glad I never heard the question, Sam, do you want to go to church? I never, ever, none of us six kids ever heard that. If it's church time, we're going. That's just the way it is. It doesn't matter if it's a revival meeting that didn't start till 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night. You get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, do chores, and get that all done, separate the milk, and get ready to go to catch the bus and go to school. You know, we lived through all of that. We didn't die. If these kids, my kids. <laughs> oh. Yep. I'm so glad about that. I'm so glad. Well, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. And you're saved anyway? Now, that's a blessing. I said, that's a blessing. I'd have had to be an out-and-out -out rebel to refuse the gospel because it was read and talked about in our home every single day either by prayer at the table, prayer in the morning, as my dad prayed before we ate, and prayer at night before we went to bed. We heard the things of God, never missed church. I think sometimes my folks drove by the church in town just to make sure we're not missing something. You know, we went to everything. I'm so glad about that. But if you weren't raised that way, I wish you would have been. But if you're saved, whoa, God reached in where there wasn't that kind of influence, 
and where there wasn't the, uh, the uh, stressing of the significance and the importance of what Jesus did and what the Bible says, and he found you and saved you anyway? Isn't that a blessing? You don't know what I'm going through. Well, you're not going to hell if you're saved. That's what I've always kind of looked at. I mean, I'm like anybody else. I'm 75 years old. I've been through a few things in my life, but I can't go to hell. I'm saved forever. I have the one who is life eternal. He's my life. I have eternal life. This world is just a few days passing through. Heaven's forever. His presence is forever. I just think we all stop and really thought about it, notwithstanding a few little struggles along the way and inconveniences and pains and hurts and tears. Sometimes that we sing about, cast your care upon him. Now, that's another good thing right there. You don't carry those things alone. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You cast those burdens upon Jesus because he cares for you. Mm. Isn't he good to us? Come boldly before the throne of grace. Boldly doesn't have to do with uh, confidence and arrogance. It has to do with tell him everything you need. Boldness has to do with speaking it all. Tell him everything you need. I don't want to tell God everything like he might not know. <laughs> do your soul good to unload and give that burden to him. He's been good to us. Now, what we, that, that's never the question, is God good or not good? That is never the question. Even when some people want to ask it, it's not the right question. The question is, what's your response to the goodness of God? And if you start drawing lines, well, I, you know, I, I, believe, I, I believe what you're saying, except, except what? No, I, I, I want to follow him, but, but what? He's Lord. And his lordship is based upon the fact that that's who he is. He can't, boy, this is bad grammar, he can't not be Lord. All you can do is refuse his lordship in your life. And he said, you don't want to do that. Neither tempt ye him. Here's what Paul said. Don't do like they did. They tempted God. And they limited the Holy One of Israel. I want to finish with this. We do not serve Jesus because He meets our expectations. We follow Jesus and obey Him because He is Lord, period, exclamation mark, end of discussion. Now, you're the one that knows whether that's so in your life or not. You're the one that knows which version of that song you'll sing. No turning back. No turning back. Or if you got a little clause in this said, there that basically says, but if he won't do what I want him to, I will turn back. Father, and you know every life, you know every heart, you know right where your children are. I love John 15, among others, and John 10, where Jesus said, I know my sheep. 
And that's what we are. We are the sheep of your pasture, according to the Bible. You know your sheep. You know where every one of your sheep are in relation to what we have addressed out of this incredible song tonight. And my prayer would be that if there's somebody, whether wittingly or unwittingly, has made a mark and expect you to work within it for you to have their devotion, they've made a mark. As long as you are blessing and working within the mark that they have made, whether wittingly or unwittingly, as long as you are working there, they're fine, they have joy, they enjoy going to church, they enjoy this and that, everything about the Christian life. But if you work in ways that are outside the mark they established, then there is anger, there is frustration, there's bitterness, there is complaining, there is blaming, there's exaggeration of the circumstances. So I pray that you'd help us to see clearly, clearly, clearly you brought this into the New Testament through Paul and said, see what they did? Neither be as they are, neither tempt ye Christ as some of them also tempted God and were bitten of the serpents. I don't know how you could have made it any more clear in your word. And so I pray that you'd look at and, and evaluate, O oh God, and by your Holy Spirit, work in hearts, because it's very likely that somebody said, I was doing fine following the Lord until, and then they point to something that was a negative circumstance to them or that disappointed them or that hurt them or somebody they love. And they bought into the worldly mindset that I have the right to never be offended. Oh, God, help us. Help us. We thank you for your goodness. Help us to be the exception to what we read in that psalm and that that high level of your wonderful works in our life would be responded to by a high level of obedience. Yes, a high level of trusting and obeying. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. May we go where we've drawn any marks and erase them all and just say, I am to follow my Lord Jesus nothing accepted no marks in the ground no boundaries that i'm limiting him with he is mine and i am his god i pray that you'd work in the lives of your people in jesus name amen let's stand together shall we There's somebody here and says, I don't even know that I'm saved. I don't even know that I am a child of God. Oh, my soul, we'd love to take the Bible and show you how you can know that you have eternal life, how you can, on the authority of the Bible, call God your Father and be called His child. We'd love to do that. Revival, though, most often, sure, it has to do with the people of God. Look at your life. 
You, 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 you look at your life. You determine. Am I His? No marks in the sand. Am I His? No circle within which He must work for me to have devotion to Him. If you know, if you know you've put some limit on God, I think this would be a good night to say, no more limits. To limit the Holy One of Israel must be a horrific offense the way it's described in the Bible. Right now, piano's playing. The Spirit of God's dealt with your heart. And you know, you know, this would be a good time just to talk to God right now. Probably a good way to approach Him would be just separate yourself and kneel and ask Him, God, I need to talk to you. I need to confess this. I need to take down the limits. I need to erase the lines that I've drawn expecting you to work within these lines. I don't want any limits. You are Lord. You own me. You bought me with your own blood. I've been redeemed. I'm your possession. You're Lord. I'm not. Thank you for listening today. For more information about Grace Baptist Church, please visit our website at gracebaptistofkettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.